Amen. I want you to turn your Bibles to uh, two openings of Scripture. One is Mark chapter 15 and the other is Isaiah 53. This being Easter, I want to talk to you a little bit about the carrying away of our sicknesses by Jesus during the crucifixion events. Mark chapter 15 tells us about um, uh, many of the elements or characteristics, uh, parts of the crucifixion. Um, Well, let me just pull, I don't want to read the whole thing. It would be, uh, take up too much time from our service, I believe, to read the whole event. So I'm just going to pull out a a verse of scripture here that uh, uh, kind of get us started in the direction I want us to go. And uh, verse 15, Mark chapter 15, verse 15 says, And so Pilate, willing willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus. When he had scourged him, to be crucified when he had scourged him to be crucified I made mention this morning and I think it bears repetition that the Bible is so um, brief in many of the uh, descriptions of of the things surrounding Jesus and the price that he paid that it takes a little bit of effort to, to dig out what's really going on we would see this, and if we didn't have any uh, information about the Old Testament or any access to the Old Testament prophecies, we would read this and we'd say, well, okay, Jesus uh, was beaten before he was crucified. But this means a lot more than just what comes out in this verse. In Isaiah chapter 53, it tells us, now this I am going to read some, beginning in verse 1, it says, Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Notice the power of God in the things that are going to be spoken is reserved for those that believe the things that are going to be said. In other words, the arm of the Lord is revealed to those that believe the report. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He, shall, he hath no form nor comeliness. And we shall see, when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire of him. Now this, this kind of cuts across my idea of the way Jesus looked and then walked around here on the earth. I have the idea that Jesus had movie star looks and he was the biggest and the strongest and the tallest and all this kind of stuff. Yet the Bible says there is nothing special about Jesus' appearance. Now, it's not talking about when he was made sin. The Bible says, uh, well, uh, look back with me to chapter 52 and verse 14. It says, and this is talking about Jesus hanging on the cross when, after he was made to be sin for us. It says, and as many, and, and as many were astonished at the, his visage, his appearance was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Other translations show that, uh, that he didn't even look human hanging on the cross. There was something about Jesus being made sin and carrying the price, paying the price of sin for mankind, even on the cross in physical form, that was supernatural. The two thieves crucified to the right and left of Jesus didn't change their appearance. I mean, I'm sure crucifixion in any in every case, it's not a pretty thing. But they didn't look inhuman. They just like, looked like men that were dying. But Jesus, because of the price that he was paying, because of the sacrifice he was making for all of mankind, not only for sickness, not only for sins, but also for sickness, the Bible tells us that he didn't even look human. That's hard to imagine of Jesus, isn't it? Back to chapter 53, verse 3, it says, He is despised and rejected of men. 
a man of sorrows, the word sorrows is literally the word pain. It's the uh, Hebrew word makab, translated pains in most every other instance. A man of pains and acquainted with grief. This word grief is the word koli, K-H-O-L-E-E. And it's translated in most every other instance, sickness. He was a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, now chapter 53, every Bible scholar, every theologian will agree and um, uh, that, that this is a chapter talking about the work of the Messiah. And then notice it says in chapter 53 in verse 4, the only surely you can find in this whole chapter is regarding what Jesus did for sickness. It says surely. It's almost like God knew ahead of time that this is what men were going to argue about. Surely. He has borne our sicknesses, same word coli in the previous verse, and carried our pains, makab, in, in verse 3. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Everybody knows that means sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. Everybody knows that means sin. Now, the word bruised here is going to be interesting because we're going to see that used in other places. The word bruised literally means mark of the blow. In other words, it's talking about that which caused Jesus to bleed. That punishment which caused Jesus to bleed. Because it was the shed blood of Jesus, the shedding of his blood, that paid the price. So back to verse 5, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He bled for our sins. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, this word stripes is the word bruise. Again, it's talking about the shedding of blood. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so, openeth not his, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. And that's talking about the three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection. He was cut off from the land of the living. This is a, uh, um, an Old Testament day of atonement phrase that's being used here. There were two scapegoats on the day of atonement. Uh, both were equally pure. Both had been examined and proclaimed uh, holy by the high priest. One, the cast lots, and one of them was to be sacrificed and the blood was to be shed for the people. The other was called the scapegoat. And the high priest would lay his hands on the head of this scapegoat and pronounce all the sins of Israel upon this animal. He would curse him. And then he was taken out into the wilderness, cut off from the land of the living is the way the Old Testament refers to it when God gave them, gave them instruction. Cut off from the land of the living. Nobody was supposed to come in contact with this thing because it was cursed and it was left out in the wilderness to be either killed by animals or die of starvation or uh, whatever cause of death would come. This is a term uh, referring to the scapegoat that's applying to Jesus here. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Now the word death in the Hebrew is plural. Made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his deaths. 
Well, we know that he was uh, enshrined, entombed in uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man's grave. That's one death. That's a physical death. We can apply that. But why would the word death be plural if physical death was the only thing he suffered? The Bible's telling us that there was a spiritual death along with the physical death that was necessary. It was part of the price that he paid. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his deaths because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. I talked about this a little bit this morning, and if you were here, forgive me for repeating myself, but for the sake of those that were not, it's important for us, uh, it's important for me to, to make some comments on this verse. It's not talking about God was happy to do this. Certainly God was pleased that his plan of redemption was coming to pass. But it means, the word pleased here means satisfied. See, there was a price for sin, a demand for justice that had to be satisfied. And that's what this is talking about. It's talking about the work of Jesus, the offering of Jesus, his body, spirit, and soul that satisfied the claims of justice. Yet it pleased or satisfied the Lord to bruise him. Notice that word bruise again. It's talking about the mark of the blow. He has put him to grief. This is the word coli. It's the word sickness in verses 3 and 4. The Greek, I mean, I'm sorry, this was, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The Hebrew literally says, he, God, hath made him sick. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus hung on the cross with cancer and leprosy and whatever else we can imagine. It means that Jesus dealt with the origin of sickness, which was paying the price for sin. We think of sin as being individual transgressions. Well, that's sins. Jesus paid the price for our sins, our individual transgressions, missing the mark. But Jesus paid the price for mankind's sin, singular, meaning that which came into the earth because of Adam and Eve's transgression in the Garden of Eden that opened the door to spiritual death. That was the origin of sin, sins, individual transgression, and it was the origin of sickness too. So here where it says he hath made him sick, it means God made Jesus the substitute for sickness. Just like he made him the substitute for sin, singular, and sins, plural. Yet it pleased the Lord or satisfied the Lord to bruise him. He hath made him sick. When thou, man, shall make his soul an offering for sin, he, Jesus, shall see his seed. The crucifixion and the resurrection is what brings about the family of God. He shall see a seed. He shall prolong his days. Literally, he shall live forever. Thank God that God raised him from the dead. He shall prolong his days or live forever, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, we can talk about and, and make some good arguments for, for these scriptures, meaning sickness and disease and, and Jesus paying the price for sickness and disease. But you know as well as I do that not everybody believes that. You know as well as I do that not everybody agrees on that. I believe that's why verse 1 is very important. Who has believed his report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? See, it's believing the truth of what the Bible says is going to be the condition for receiving the power of God for everything Jesus did. For example, if you don't believe Jesus died for your sins, then you can't be saved. The power of God for salvation, forgiveness of sins, can't be yours. And if you don't believe that Jesus died for your sickness, then the power of God for healing can't be yours either. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The ones that believe the report. 
So we could make some arguments and some, uh, some comments about these things, and, and we have and do often. One of the things that I'll draw your attention to is Matthew eight seventeen is a is a divine, the inspired commentary on Isaiah. It talks about Jesus being a certain place, and and when the evening came, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils and many that were sick, and he healed them. He he healed the sick. He healed them all. Verse seventeen tells us why. That it might be fulfilled, or in other words, that it might show what the fulfillment looks like, of Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses see matthew was inspired by the holy ghost to write in the greek language the language of jesus day to write in the greek language that the old testament translation into the new testament benefit of isaiah 53 5 which says with his stripes we were healed means that he bore our sicknesses along with our sins but not everybody accepts that some people will say well that just means jesus did that for the people in his day well, if that's true, then here in Isaiah 53, 5, where it says, with his stripes, we are healed. If that means the people of Jesus' day, then that means that the hour that refers to that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and the bruise for our iniquities can't be ours. It must be for Jesus' day. See, that argument just doesn't hold water. That's like trying to argue that the book of James doesn't belong to the church but it only belongs to the 12 tribes of Jews that were scattered abroad when Jesus or when the book of James was written. It's just as unscholarly to to claim that as to claim that the hour of Isaiah 53.5 doesn't include us when it comes to sickness. So what are we to do? Well, let me read to you from some things. I could just tell you what's in here, but I'm not a medical doctor, and I want to read to you from... Uh, a medical doctor's perspective. I want to read to you, and forgive me for, for some of this is going to be repetitive, but I want you to see that it comes from a variety of sources. I want to read to you a medical description of the flogging and crucifixion of Jesus. Now, this is excerpted from the Expositor's Bible Commentary, uh, and I'll give you the page numbers and all that other kind of stuff if you want. But this is a comment on Mark fifteen fifteen, where it says Jesus was scourged, And then crucified. It says the Romans first stripped the victim and tied his hands to a post above his head. The whip, which was called a flagellum, was made of several pieces of leather with pieces of bone and lead embedded near the ends. Bone and lead pieces. Two men, one on each side of the victim, usually did the flogging. The Jews mercifully limited flogging to a maximum of 40 stripes. The Romans had no such limitation. The following is a medical doctor's description of the physical effects of flogging. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the the blows continue, they cut deeper in the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, And finally, spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons. And the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. It's not surprising that victims of Roman flogging seldom survived. Now, I want to read to you from uh, a study that was done by the Mayo Clinic some years ago about the same subject. 
Flogging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution, and only women and Roman senators or soldiers, except in cases of desertion, were exempt. The usual instrument was a short whip, again called a flagellum, with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bones were tied at intervals. Occasionally, staves also were used. For scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing, and his hands were tied to an upright post. The back, buttocks, and legs were flogged either by two soldiers called lictors or by one who alternated positions. The severity of the scourging depended on the disposition of the lictors and was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. After scourging, the soldiers often taunted their victim. These are the medical aspects of the scourging, still from the Mayo Study Clinic. At the Mayo Clinic study, excuse me. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. Concerning Jesus' specific crucifixion, at the praetorium, Jesus was severely whipped. Although the severity of scourging is not discussed in the four gospel accounts, it is implied in one of the epistles, 1 Peter 2.24. A detailed word study of the ancient Greek text for this verse indicates that the scourging of Jesus was particularly harsh. It is not known whether the number of lashes was limited to 39 and according to Jewish law. The Roman soldiers, amused that this weakened man had claimed to be king, to be a king, began to mock him by placing a robe on his shoulders, a crown of thorns on his head, and a wooden staff as a scepter in his right hand. Next, they spat on Jesus and struck him on the head with a wooden staff. Moreover, when the soldiers tore the robe from Jesus' back, they probably reopened the scourging wounds. The severe scourging with its intense pain and appreciable blood loss most probably left Jesus in a pre-shocked state. Moreover, forgive me on this word, hematidrosis, I guess, had rendered his skin particularly tender. The physical and mental abuse meted out by the Jews and the Romans, as well as the lack of food, water, and sleep, also contributed to his generally weakened state. Therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' physical condition was at least serious and possibly critical. Now I want to read to you from T.J. McCrossan's book, Bodily Healing and the Atonement. And I, I should set this up by saying this. He talks about the Greek language. Dr. McCrossan was a, uh, uh, not only a medical doctor, but a doctor of theology. And he was also a Greek scholar. Now, as I said, the, the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Everybody knows that. But the Hebrew Bible was not in common use. It was not readily available in Jesus' day. There were, the priests had scrolls and, and stuff like that. And you know when Jesus would go into the, the synagogues, he would stand up and read. That was his custom. He would read from the Hebrew scrolls. But the Bible of Jesus' day was considered to be the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the German, uh, I'm sorry, the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew. 
That's why Jesus, in many of the things that he said in the Gospels, is not quoting from the Greek, from the Hebrew. He's quoting from the Greek. It shows that he was very familiar, most familiar with the Septuagint, probably more so than the Hebrew text. Now, in Isaiah 53, where it translates uh, from the Hebrew into the Greek, there are certain words that are used. Remember I told you to pay attention to the word bruise? He was bruised for our iniquities. He was bruised for our um, sicknesses as well. It uses a specific word there. And the word that's used there is not the sing- is not the plural for bruises, but the singular for bruise. And Dr. McCrossan poses a question. Now, why do Isaiah in the Septuagint and Peter, 1 Peter 2.24, with his stripes, literally bruise, use the word malopi or malopi, I'm not sure how you say it, which is the singular of malop, malops and not malopsi, bruises, which would be plural. The word malops means the mark of a blow or a bruise. If Christ had been so scourged that the mark of each blow could plainly have been seen on his back, then the rule of Greek grammar would have demanded here the use of the word translated bruises and not the singular word bruise. The use of the dated singular here tells us as clearly as language can express it that our dear Savior's back had been so terribly scourged that no one blow could possibly be distinguished from the other. Every spot on his back was so bruised and lacerated that it was just like one great bruise. Had there been one quarter inch of space between any of the two bruises, individual marks, the Greek here must then have read bruises and not the singular bruise. It points out that the the Romans had no law uh, or limit to the number of stripes the Jews had a, uh, a law that says you couldn't beat anybody more than 39 times, but the, but the Jews, the, the Romans didn't have that. Let me keep reading from Dr. McCrossan. He said, just here, let us quote from Gekki's Life of Christ as he, as he describes Christ's scourgings. Victims condemned to the cross first underwent the hideous torture of the scourge, and this was immediately inflicted upon Jesus. He was now seized by some of the soldiers standing near and after being stripped to the waist, was bound in a stooping posture, his hands being behind his back, to a post or a block near the tribunal. He was then beaten at the pleasure of the soldiers with knots of rope or plaited leather throngs, armed at the ends with acorn-shaped drops of lead or small, sharp-pointed bones. In many cases, not only was the back of the person's scourge cut open in all directions, but even the eyes, the face, and the breast were torn and teeth not seldom knocked out. Under the fury of the countless stripes, the victim sometimes sank amid screams, convulsive leaps and distortions, into a senseless heap, sometimes died on the spot, sometimes were taken away, an unrecognizable mass of bleeding flesh to find deliverance in death from the inflammation and fever, sickness and shame. The scourging of Jesus was of the severest, For the soldiers only too gladly vented on any Jew the grudge they bore that nation, and they would doubtless try if they could. I'm sorry, let me read that again. And would doubtless try if they could not force out of the confession which his silence had denied to the governor. Remember, Jesus wouldn't answer Pilate. Verse 
Besides, he was to be crucified, and the harder the, harder the scourging, the less life there would be left to detain them afterwards on guard at the cross. Now, Eusebius, the early church historian, describes this Roman scourging of some martyrs this way. This is not him speaking of Jesus, but of the martyrs that were crucified in the, couple, the first couple of centuries. All around were horrified to see them so torn with the scourges that their very veins were laid bare and the inner muscles and sinews and even their very bowels were exposed. And the Bible identifies that or describes that as by saying Pilate had Jesus scourged. Let me go back to Isaiah 53. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. I wonder if that is a prophetic reference to the scourging, people turning their heads away. Verse 4, surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised, the mark of the blow, for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes, again bruised, we are healed. Verse 10, yet it satisfied the Lord to bruise him. He hath made him sick. See the connection? The scourging and the bearing of sickness. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. When you think of it in the terms that many believe actually happened, it makes it a solemn thing, doesn't it? With his stripes, the mark of the blow, the bruise that he was left with from the severity of the beating. With his bruise, we are healed. Now, I think it's important for us to go back to verse 4 for a minute. Surely, as I said before, the only surely in the, ber- in the chapter has to do with sickness and disease. Now, that's not to say that surely he, uh, there shouldn't be a surely he bore our transgressions and our iniquities. But see, we don't need a surely, surely for that. Most everybody believes that. But surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has borne our sickness and carried our pains. These words borne and carried are two Levitical terms. Levitical verbs it means these are words that are used for the carrying away of sin by the scapegoat on the day of atonement these are words that are used that mean to carry away once and for all to carry the scapegoat carried away or bore the sins of Israel and as a result they were released from them until the next year day of atonement came around and that's, these are the words that are used when it talks about what Jesus did for our sickness. It says he bore them. He carried them away. He paid the price for them once and for all. 
everything that Jesus carried on your behalf was for the purpose so that you and I not have to carry it ourselves. Surely, he has borne our sickness. Surely, he has carried our pains. Let's just lift our hands and worship in promo. Lord, thank you so much for your sacrifice. Thank you for all that you did. Thank you that you carried our sickness. You bore our sickness. You carried our pains. And with your stripes, the mark of the blow, the scourging, the shedding of blood through the beating that you took at the hands of the Roman soldiers at the order of Pilate, with your stripe, your mark, your bruise, we are healed. We worship you, Lord Jesus. Forgive us for considering it casually. But when we look back at the, the event as it occurred and the descriptions of the pain and the suffering that was involved, it makes your work even more precious to us, Lord. Lord, we believe your report. And we claim the healing power of God in our bodies because you bore our sickness, because you carried our pain. We need not carry it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done. Say it with me. I receive my healing in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Lord, we worship you. Thank you, Lord, for your healing work in our bodies. Thank you, Lord, that the work is done. Forgive us for being like the disciples who couldn't stay awake and pray with you. You knew what was coming. They couldn't see it. Sometimes it's hard for us yet to see what occurred. But thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, for your love for us. The sacrifice accomplished on the cross. And oh, thank you, Father, that you raised Jesus from the dead. Thank you that he's alive now and seated at your right hand to enforce the terms of the covenant blessings to enforce the healing in our bodies that his sacrifice paid for. To enforce the breaking of Satan's power over every part of our lives in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let me share one thing more with you. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, Paul's writing to the church and he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, 
For it, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It seems that we oftentimes lose sight of the fact that it's the knowledge of what Jesus has done that makes the difference. For example, sometimes people think, well, I need more faith, and so they focus on faith. When really what they need is not more faith, they need more knowledge. They need a greater knowledge of what Jesus has accomplished. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Or we could say it this way, faith comes by hearing the good news of Jesus' finished work. Faith comes by hearing what Jesus has already accomplished. And remember, it's the good news of the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. So when you gain knowledge of what Jesus has done, it puts the power of God to work in your life. Faith is not a hard thing. It's not a struggle. There is a fight, but the fight is to resist doubt. It's not hard to believe. I know a lot of times we seem to have the idea that we could just find somebody that had a great anointing, or if we were just stronger in faith ourselves, or if, if we could teach the word better or, or whatever. But folks, it's not the ability to teach. It's not an anointing that makes a difference. It's the word of God that works. The simple truth of the word. We were teaching last Sunday night. There was a lady, when I came in, there was a prayer request on my chair. And there was a lady that was in pain and said she had some kind of back pain. Found out later on it was because of some surgeries that she had had and it still didn't fix it and, and so forth. And so she was in some, some what she called excruciating pain. We all um, measure pain in different levels. You know, what's a little pain for me may be a lot for you or vice versa. But anyway, she called it excruciating pain. And we just taught the word. We're just teaching the word, teaching the word on believing God, believing with the heart and saying with the mouth. And at the end of the service, she came up to me and she said, Pastor Mike, she said, this is my first time here. We've been watching you on TV for a while. She and her husband were here. She said, I want you to know that was me that turned in the prayer request. And I don't need prayer now. She said, my back is well. Well, I knew she was here because of the prayer request. But I didn't teach anything or change the message specifically tailored toward her. I didn't do anything special. I didn't do anything unique. I didn't do anything, to be honest with you. It was the power of the word of God that she heard and received that healed her back. Beth was telling me on the way to church tonight about somebody that's been in the church since almost from the beginning that was having some heart palpitations. And she was reminded, they'd been going on for a couple of weeks, and she was reminded that we prayed over that 30 years ago. And she stopped and she thought about it and she says, you know, Pastor Mike prayed for me and laid hands on me for this 30 years ago. I don't need to be prayed for again. This is already done. And from that moment and for the next two weeks, it's been two weeks ago now, I guess, from, according to the story, she stopped having heart palpitations. Now what happened? Did God change? Did God give her an extra jolt of, of, of healing power? No. She got her mind focused back on what was true. And the power of the word of God that was working in her all the time was put back to work. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul said. For it, the good news of what Jesus did, the good news of the beating that Jesus took, the bearing away of our sickness and disease, is the power of 
God to salvation and deliverance and healing. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that the finished work of Jesus means that he did it all and all we have to do is receive it. We thank you, therefore, Father, that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that the work is done. Our job is simply to believe that we receive. And your word says that we shall have our healing. We know that it's real already. It's just an unseen form. But the power of the word of God, received by faith, brings it into physical reality. Thank you, Lord, that we are healed. Amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Have a good evening.